This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Council, Promised Land, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Beck Reed from All the Queen's Men joins us to talk about the Coming Back Out Salon. We also speak with Gabriel Philpy about new intersex youth publication, Youth and I. And later, Rodney Croom joins us to talk about religious discrimination and what's going on with the Labor Party. You're listening to 3CR Radio. And the Coming Out Salon, Coming Back Out Salon, in fact, is on next weekend. On the line, we have Beck Reid uh, from All the Queen's Men, who organises the event. Beck, welcome to the program. Hello. You must have some very excited LGBTIQ elders out there awaiting the ball. We hope so. We're thrilled that we can present the Coming Back Out Salon this year to the beautiful members of the older members of the LGBTI community throughout Melbourne. I believe we've even got some people coming from interstate coming. So it's pretty exciting time. So why did you change the name from the Coming Back Out Ball to the Coming sure. Back Out Salon? Yes, this is this year. It's a slightly um, a slightly different iteration. It's an afternoon event. It's like a very um, juicy soiree afternoon tea dance sort of feeling. So, um, so we just thought salon was a lovely word that sort of conjured those feelings. It'll still have all the elegance and the and the charm and the sensibility of the ball, but it's an afternoon salon. So it's basically kind of like a bit of a lounge type atmosphere, a bit more <laughs> sedate. Well, I mean, it'll still be fabulous, as the dress code um, mentions. They'll still there's beautiful. We'll have a live orchestra, champagne on arrival. You can imagine it will feel pretty sumptuous. There's been words like speakeasy being mentioned around the artistic team, so it'll. Um, um, we're hoping that actually people will be on their feet dancing and having a fabulous time. It's really great. You've got a live orchestra. Tell us a bit more about that. Yes, well, the the serendipitous opportunity to welcome Yo-Yo Ma into the coming back out world um, meant that it was just too good to pass up the chance to also feature um, live Australian musicians. So we're collaborating collaborating with Skunk Works Productions and they're putting together a special coming back out to orchestra, uh, 28-piece orchestra, the strings, the brass, the whole bit. They'll be playing some gorgeous rainbow anthems and, of course, Yo-Yo Ma will be playing his beautiful bark favourites and sharing his love of bark, I suppose, with us, which is pretty wondrous. Yeah, he's a big name. Tell us a bit more about <laughs> him and his work. It's quite a yeah, coup getting him. the ordinary thing is Yo-Yo now does these uh, initiatives called Day of Action where he travels around the world playing his gorgeous concerts and then he stays in that particular city for one more day to participate in a day of action, which is a lovely way that he can live his philanthropy, I suppose. And what the day of action entails is shining a light on something 
pretty amazing that's happening in that local community. So we were very blessed that Yo-Yo and his team chose all the Queen's men and were very interested in the work that the company had been doing over the last few years with the Coming Back Out Ball initiative and also things like LGBTI Elders Dance Club. So they literally contacted us out of the blue and said, would you like Yo-Yo to come and spend some time with us? And what would you like to do? And we knew exactly what we wanted to do. So it was very serendipitous that Yo-Yo is going to come and come and be with us. And he chose us. <laughs> It's such a great cause. I mean, you must meet a lot of LGBTIQ elders who can't be open about their sexuality or their relationships, uh, past or present, because they're in aged care or their families don't approve. Is that the case? We do, and which is why it's very important to us to create a very important culture that is safe and inclusive. Every month when we have our regular dance clubs at the at the Melbourne Spiegel tent in Collingwood, it's very important that the doors are literally wide open and everyone is welcome. Um, and I guess that's what we, that's the most important thing we can do is keep showing up and keep saying to the world, we're here, you are all welcome, so that people can come and join us on their terms when they can, when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Elders Dance Club, that must be a great way of kind of road testing what works possibly for the ball, your annual ball. Well, in many ways, yes, but it's also a lovely culture building space. We've been rolling out the dance clubs every month for the last four years now. And it means also that the uh, participants who come along can really grow the sensibility of the dance club into making it their own. So the lovely, this lovely thing is happening now where our regular LGBTI elders who come along are actually taking responsibility to welcome new members of the community to dance club every month. Um, so we are able to sort of set up this, this space and hold it for people to to um, feel really safe and joyful and connect with other people that they may not necessarily meet in an environment that is also a bit luscious on a Sunday afternoon in the Spiegel tent. (laughs) You've got a really strong community development focus. You're really building the community. You must really be seeing people growing, even though they're they're older, there still must be enormous social growth. We absolutely are, and that has been a great privilege of working in this space and with these community members over a long period of time. It was very clear to us at the beginning when we wanted to, um, you know, shine a light on the the older members of the LGBTI community, that um, it would take time and that we needed to build relationships that were full of trust and that also imbued um, a sense of the elders being able to um, have a say in what they wanted to see happen. So that's a beautiful thing to be a part of over a long period of time. Um, and it's lovely to be able to be responsive and it's lovely to be able to offer things like the Coming Back Out Salon back to the community to say thank you, we love you, we honour you to the glorious future. <laughs> and that attitude, I think, in our LGBTIQ community has been a long time coming, hasn't it? For a long time, elders weren't really recognised that much. Yeah, and, 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 you know, obviously politically with some things that have happened over the last last few years in Australia, it, it's... it's Clearly, there's a zeitgeist here, and the kind of the kind of um, community initiatives that were about social transformation that we've been wanting to do for a long time has been very pointed and timely. So, you know, when we did the very first coming back out ball, it was at the same time as the same sex debacle. So, it was a very loaded, heightened time in the country, but also literally in the room. <laughs> you know, people were really ready to actually just celebrate and find joy in a safe space. So, yes, we have been very lucky that we've been able to create cultural actions that are part of a much bigger political story, a very important one. It sounds like this has been an awesome journey for you as well. What's been the highlight? Oh, God, well, 
that we meet every month at LGBTI Elders Dance Club new people come along. So it's a great privilege to literally feel like you're meeting new family members every month. Um, and obviously just to be able to spend time with the elders of our community and really listen to their stories and reflect and think about what kind of humans that we can be today and into the future. It's a great privilege. Are there any anecdotes you can share about meeting LGBTI elders and perhaps the stories they've told you? Oh, certainly stories around, um, you know, pretty glorious times of, of old members of the community that um, were able to have fabulous experiences at sort of um, Queen's Balls back in the day and their gorgeous costumage that they would wear and, you know, great stories around the Carmen Miranda kind of life and time feeling of those balls has been re really wonderful to learn about. Um, but also some beautiful experiences and interactions with people who come to LGBTI Elders Dance Club with family members, so older people who are able to come with their children and their children are bringing them along really as an act of love to say, here's a space where we can all be together and you can live your true sexual and cultural and gendered identity. So that's, that's a particular beautiful beautiful thing to witness, that families come along. <laughs> now, you also organise these events, of course, with the fabulous Tristan Meacham, who I believe you met on the dance floor. Is that the yeah, case? he's a bit fabulous. <laughs> How'd you meet? We, we met on the dance floor over 10 years ago. Wow. We shared a tequila shot very quickly, and then it was very clear that um, our, our fates were sealed, I think. Wow. So um, I call him my, my art wife, um, I'm his art husband, and we have the great honour of creating projects like this all over the country. We're also rolling out the Coming Back Out Ball in Scotland in partnership with the National Theatre of Scotland, Eden Court, and Luminate over there. So it's been lovely to take these initiatives offshore and, and be a part of a global conversation around honouring LGBTI um, elders. Yeah, tell us a bit more about the trip to Scotland. It sounds amazing. It is amazing. It's this lovely opportunity to, again, um, participate in a long lead community building um, trajectory. We've been rolling out dance clubs in Glasgow and in the Highlands in Inverness all year, this year, and the Coming Back Out Ball will happen in Glasgow next May. So it's been wonderful and to witness, you know, to being in a conversation with the entire country of Scotland and witness the community building that's going on there and actually the similarity between um, older members of the community having very similar experiences and talking about the toughness of being honoured. So that's been a great thing to see the cultural exchange and actually that we have much more in common than we think we do. Um, and also it's been rolled out with local facilitators there. So, of course, it's wonderful for us to collaborate with sort of our art cousins in Scotland and, and see what great things they do at Dance Club and what they can dream up for the ball. What about the differences between Australia and Scotland insofar as LGBTIQ elders are concerned? Um, interestingly, there's been some differences around semantics of language. So over there they call it the social dance club. That was really important for them to put there because of the history of social dancing in Scotland and around, you know, Kayleys and, and you know, social dancing being really a hub of community business. Um, in traditional Scottish culture. Um, what else? I guess you just, just learning new languages and terms and references. We, we always do the nut bush, for example, at every dance club. So, of course, 
Scotland was very curious about what that was and teaching folks the nutbush. And they shared with us they have a dance called the slosh, which basically, if you're Scottish, you know the slosh. So they've been teaching us, the, the LGBTI elders in Scotland have been teaching us very specific dances like that. So that's been quite fun. Um, yeah, I mean, it really is a beautiful space of genuine cultural and social exchange. Tell us a bit more about the slosh. That's an amazing name. Great name, and literally everyone in Scotland knows what you mean when you say it. Uh, it is—it's kind of similar to the nutbush, but it's the dance that everyone does at every wedding or celebration. Um, what does it look no like? Tina Turner involved, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> um, there's a lot of great vines. It's quite similar to the nutbush, and they can do it to traditional music as well as you know pop music. So we're wedded to, to Tina. We have a big love of Tina with the nutbush, where the slosh is a bit more. Um, um, what's the word? Flexible. <laughs> but yeah, great fun. Awesome stuff. Give us the details so people can get a ticket for the Coming Back Out Salon here in Melbourne next weekend if there are tickets is, available. I know it's would almost you sold out. it has sold out? <gasps> We're very excited to have sold out. Alas, we will have a waiting list. So you can go to the comingbackoutball.com website and there's booking links there. And we're very um, happy to add you to the waiting list and see if we can accommodate you. Sold out. Exciting times. Come it is indeed. And witness Yo-Yo Ma and amazing LGBTIQ artists, Australian artists as well. Awesome stuff. Beck Reid, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Stevie Wonder, for once in my life, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Youth and I is a new publication aimed at young people with intersex variations. On the line, we have Gabriel Philpy, who is one of the contributors to the publication. Gabriel, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. Gabriel, tell us a bit more about Youth and I and its focus. Youth and I is this wonderful collection of creative works uh, by intersex young people. It's really designed to create a platform for us to really tell our own stories on our own terms. So it's a really wonderful collection of uh, creative writing, poetry, reflections, artwork and photography. And it really just showcases the talent and the experiences of our wonderful community. Fantastic. How did you get involved in the project? I know the editor, uh, Steph Lum, who's done some brilliant work on, on getting this together for us. And I was directly contacted to uh, add a submission. I actually thought with the uh, youth classifier that I'd be too old uh, to submit, so I didn't initially approach them, and she she approached me, and it was uh, I was really thankful for that opportunity. You've written a poem in the publication called Enter I. Tell us about that. Sure thing. So uh, Enter I is probably the first time I've read written uh, creatively, and probably the first time I've written poetry even for a long time. It was the first time I really put my experience into creative works and in, into a way that I could talk about it from my perspective to discuss that journey of self-discovery and having that control over my story uh, and really my honouring my responses to the different bits of information and the way that that's come together in my life. Tell us about some of the other writers in the publication uh, and also their work. It's a really, really interesting and wonderful collection of really talented people um, and an incredible display of talent across the board. The people that contributed are across the globe, so some of them I don't know at all. 
Some of them are some acquaintances I've had online and some of them are some close friends of mine. So there's sort of preferencing, I suppose, of the Australian and local submissions, but it does go across as many submissions from people across the world. And some of them have shared personal stories and personal information and others have written reflections or more general pieces. There's uh, a wonderful display of uh, photography and visual arts and comic strips and a huge, huge collection of work there and I really encourage everyone to have a look at it when you have an opportunity. What's been the greatest thing for you about being involved in this publication, this groundbreaking publication? It's still a little surreal to be honest. It's something that I am incredibly honoured to have been a part of and something that does just sort of, um, I don't know, it carries a lot of weight and I'm I'm really honoured to be a part of that. Uh, It was a huge sort of community experience and to get to network and to interact with these people. Um, We had a public sort of launch of the the book recently in Canberra, and that was fantastic to even get up and stand in front of a a group of people uh, in a crowded room and to talk about my experience and to share the work. Um, It was just really brilliant all across the board. It must be a great tool for breaking down isolation that young intersex people experience. Yeah, it is an absolute tool in finding community and to seeing yourself and people like yourself reflected. And hopefully, I, I have no doubt that it will be an immense value to intersex young people that are growing up to have that sort of resource. So this is kind of like an ongoing publication, isn't it? It's a Youth and I one. I imagine there's going to be some others down the track. This version or this uh, iteration of Youth and I was funded by the ACT government's Capital of Equality Grants Program, so we really owe a lot to them. So I should have acknowledged them earlier. I just wanted to say thank you for their contribution. It was initially intended as a one-off, but with the huge display of uh, creativity and work and the, the sheer amount of demand for this, I, I imagine that there will be others, and we do hope that there are more in future. Absolutely. What would you say to young intersex people who might be listening about uh, the strengths of the publication and why they should get a copy? Well, everyone should get a copy. I think it, it's free. It's easy. You can just download it off your phone or off the internet. And I think it's really important, at least it was for me, to read things about similar situations and to know that I'm not alone, to see the work that other people have done and the experiences and the lives of other people. And it's growing up intersex, you can be quite isolated. It's quite hard to find a community and to be told that you're not going to find or meet or interact with people that are like you. So to have that resource at your fingertips, I mean, I certainly would have loved to have it growing up as a child. Yeah, absolutely. Can you tell us a bit about your personal journey? Sure. So my personal journey, I mean, much like other intersex people I imagine or that I've spoken to is is a bit of a a complex one and one that I've um, really, really been trying to piece together. So I have a unknown variation. There is sort of indication that there are some differences with me and my body and it's really been a process of working with with doctors and people who maybe know a little bit more about it to find out quite what that is. So uh, it's quite hard to, to talk about, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was a process of always knowing that something was a little bit off and something was a little bit unusual in terms of the way that I related to myself, my body and the world around me and the way that that was sort of presented to me as well. And the process of not having a lot of information and really needing to find that information and find intersex people and resources and community. 
and to engage in, in the processes of uh, piecing together what sort of happened in my past. And I guess, you know, because of, I suppose, all the stuff that many intersex people uh, discover later in life and all the secrets and stuff, that really makes it really hard to build a community, doesn't it, when people are so isolated and don't have, you know, the benefits perhaps of peer support and, and sharing from, you know, older people's perhaps journeys before them. Absolutely. So peer support is a, a really big and useful tool that we have. So we've got a wonderful organisation here in Canberra, Agenda Agenda, and they offer some intersex peer support um, groups and services. And it, it is really important to find that community. We have a history of our language and our identities being controlled and spoken about by other people and not by us. Even even the word intersex, you won't really see a lot of doctors using it or that. And we are sort of split up as a community into these diagnoses or these conditions or these boxes that are this is in in a prescriptive way that this is intersex or this is not intersex and really trying to bring together uh, people that are falling under that. Yeah, it sounds like the community's really been dictated to by the medical profession rather than, you know, a community model being used and, and you know, basically a model built on empowerment and uh, people's, you know, choices being respected. Yeah, well, that's certainly where we're sort of moving towards and, and aiming towards as well is to get that, that power and that empowerment and that autonomy back in the hands of intersex people around our decisions and our bodies and our identities. Absolutely. So, Gabriel, how can people get a copy of Youth and I? Okay, so as I mentioned, there is a free download available online. So the link is darlington.org.au forward slash youth and I. Awesome stuff, Gabriel. Thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. Congratulations for the publication. I love your poem, Into I. Been great chatting. Thanks heaps. Thank you so much and thanks for having me. Cheers. Talk again. You're listening to 3CR Radio. It's hard to look right at your baby, but here's my number. So call me maybe. Hey, I just met you. Ray Jepsen there with her classic Call Me Maybe. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James and we're joined on the line by veteran LGBTIQ community activist Rodney Croom to talk about the federal government's religious discrimination legislation and the Labor Party's response. Rodney, welcome to the program. Hi James, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's always great to talk to you, Rodney. Uh, Rodney, how has the Labor Party and its leader, Anthony Albanese, responded to the federal government's religious discrimination uh, proposed legislation? Well, not really in a way that I would prefer. We've seen generally silence from the Labor Party, and particularly Anthony Albanese. And we've also seen quite a few excuses for that silence. In recent weeks, there have been a number of uh, LGBTI delegations walking the halls of Parliament House and uh, speaking to them, they've reported to me that there's been sort of like a a litany of excuses for why Labor has been silent. 
in response to the Religious Discrimination Bill and the discrimination that it will allow. There's excuses, for example, like um, we haven't seen the final bill yet, which is what the Labor Party representatives say. We haven't seen the final bill yet, so we shouldn't say anything about it. But we have seen a draft that cuts across uh, and diminishes discrimination protections that currently exist. And uh, my response has been, well, Labor really needs to be out there now talking about why this is not acceptable in order to uh, help establish that narrative and to encourage support in the community, again, watering down existing protections. Another excuse has been, well, you know, it's important that we consult first before we declare our position. And that's true. Consultation is important. But we know from the draft bill that's been put out there, the exposure draft, that um, it, like I said, waters down existing protections. And I've found it very disturbing that Labor has thus far refused to commit to protecting uh, Australia's existing discrimination laws, particularly given that almost all of the discrimination laws in Australia, including those that the Religious Discrimination Bill will water down, the Race Discrimination Act, the Disability Discrimination Act, state discrimination laws like the Tasmanian Anti-Discrimination Act, all of those are Labor's legacy. They've all been enacted by Labor governments, and yet here we have the Labor Party at a federal level not standing up as strongly as I believe it should in defence of those protections. Now, yeah, to the their credit, don't there have fly. been some Labor members who have uh, said that they find the religious discrimination bill appalling. Louise Pratt, the senator from WA, members of the Tasmanian Labor Party have stood up for our Anti-Discrimination Act, but we really need to see that kind of backbone from Anthony Albanese. It's interesting, isn't it? The excuses uh, don't really pass the pub test. I mean, what about the principles involved? What about the facts in relation to how disadvantaged groups and minority groups and vulnerable people would be affected by the government's proposed legislation? I mean, the fact that they haven't seen the final version doesn't really cut it. No, it doesn't. I mean, we can be pretty sure that some of the most egregious elements of the of the exposure draft will be in the final version. So, like I said earlier, it's important that Labor speaks out against watering down discrimination protections now. The longer it leaves that, the harder it will be to to build community support against watering down discrimination protections. And on top of that, the LGBTI community itself, I think, really needs Labor to speak up. A recent survey of over 4,500 LGBTI Australians found that people feel worse now because of this debate about religious freedom and discrimination than they did during the Marriage Equality Postal Survey. And people felt pretty bad then, LGBTI people. So you can imagine how how insecure, anxious, uh, unhappy and abandoned people are feeling. And, and for Labor to remain silent in the face of this threat to discrimination protection uh, is just making things worse. We need Labor to step up in defence of our equality. And, and like you said, it's not just for LGBTI people. There are a range of groups disadvantaged by the government's proposed legislation, people with disability, women, Indigenous groups, racial minorities, a whole range of groups, including minority faiths. Even though it's meant to protect, this bill is meant to protect people from religious discrimination, it's pretty clear that it will encourage discrimination against minority faiths. So there's lots of Australians who stand to lose from this bill, and it's Labor's uh, obligation morally to be there defending us. Politically, the Labor strategists say, well, you know, the government uh, is divided on this, let's let them, let's let those divisions play out. I don't think it's necessarily that divided, but the moral issue in front of us is, is, is so urgent, it's so important, that I don't think those kinds of tawdry political 
calculations should really come into play. And the Labor Party knows that. I mean, they know the distress this is causing. They know what's going to happen if indeed this legislation does pass in its current form. Heavens forbid, you know, what it's going to look like when it gets to the final, you know, draft. What's really going on with the Labor Party then? Um, well, uh, you're right that Labor, mem- that Labor members know what the problems are with leg- this legislation, and they also know that they have the power to stop it. Uh, although it's likely to go through the lower house uh, with the support of government members in the Senate, if uh, you know, the, thus far the crossbenchers have expressed scepticism about this, Jackie Lambie and um, Central Alliance and the Greens, and if Labor combines with them, the numbers will be there to block it. So they know it's a bad law, and they know they have the power to block it. So why aren't they saying that they will do that? Mm-hmm. I fear it's because there are divisions within Labor's ranks between uh, those who are strong defenders of discrimination protections, people like Mark Dreyfus, who is the Shadow Attorney General. I mentioned Louise Pratt before and many others. There's a division between them and the Catholic right of the Labor Party who, who support this bill or have been encouraged to support it by the Catholic bishops, and also those members in, it in Western Sydney, those Labor members in Western Sydney who fear that they need to support this bill or lose support in those areas where there's strong religious communities. Now, I don't believe that Labor will lose votes if it oppose, opposes this bill. Uh, the uh, ABC Vote Compass before the last election said that only 1% of Australians think that religious freedom is a major issue. One percent. That's not going to change the next election result. The opinion poll opinion polls show that a majority of Australians don't want to see extra discrimination in the name of religion. Why isn't the Labor Party reaching out to those people who are far greater in number and encourage encouraging them in a campaign to become part of a campaign to stop? religious discrimination in the name of religion. And of course, Um, this issue, Rodney, must be bleeding votes to the Greens. I mean, one of the reasons why Labor did so well in Victoria at the last election was because of its progressive policies. So people who had abandoned them for the Greens, in some instances, in quite a few, in fact, came back. So even though federal Labor, I think, is trying to, you know, appease and appeal to this kind of, you know, Queensland marginal seat kind of mentality, in reality, this issue is costing them elsewhere in more progressive parts of the country. They must see that. We'd think they would, because you're absolutely right, it is. In the in the capital cities, uh, particularly in Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia and, and WA, it will cost uh, the Labor Party if it continues to be seen to be weak on these issues, if it's not even willing to stand up for its own legacy of, of Australia's, you know, Australia's network of anti-discrimination laws. If it's not even willing to stand up for those, it will inevitably lose votes to the Greens. And like I said before, I just can't see what the quid pro quo is, to use a, a common term at the moment. Um, I can't see how Labor will win votes by supporting that bill. Um, the people who are most adamant in support of the religious discrimination bill have been and will continue to be liberal voters, or even further to the right. Yeah, this They're is a pattern we've Labor. seen before, Rodney, isn't it, where Labor loses an election, and we saw this during the Howard years, and then they think, OK, we're lost, we've lost, so we're going to have to appeal to the people who actually didn't vote for us and probably never will. It kind of is a bit of a flawed logic, isn't it? And it's kind of part of a pattern that they seem to get into repeatedly. There seems to be a... You're absolutely right. There seems to be a conflation in the in the minds of Labor strategists between what they see as the religious vote, uh, the conservative religious vote, which, as I said before, will, you know, those people are not going to vote Labor, and the blue-collar 
male working class vote, um, which they feel, you know, is a vote that they need to, that is naturally a Labor vote that they're scared of losing. And if you look at the opinion polls, blue collar men are not more likely to be prejudiced. They're not more likely to support discrimination in the name of religion. They're not more likely to oppose equality for LGBTI people. Or if they are, it's only by, you know, one or two percentage points over blue-collar women or over white-collar men. This isn't an issue that's going to bring blue-collar men back to the Labor Party. It makes no sense, electorally. Labor lost the last election because of high-profile, uh, well-funded scare campaigns about jobs, taxes, uh, foreign investment, uh, China, those kinds of issues, because of religious discrimination. And I really hope that the upcoming report into into why Labor lost the last election highlights that fact. If I it mean, it's interesting, then... Rodney, isn't it? You'd think if they actually spoke out strongly and stridently against this legislation that they would be seen as having a backbone post-election and sticking to their progressive principles. But alas, by not responding in an, in an assertive way that combats prejudice, they're just wedging themselves and, and appearing weak. And, and basically appealing to no one. I mean, I, I hear not even the Christian lobby is particularly happy with this legislation. Yes, you're right. There are strong conservative religious forces that, that want this legislation to go much further. I found in my advocacy um, and you know, observing other people's advocacy over the years that what Australian voters really respect is if you stick to principle and if you're consistent, even if they don't necessarily agree with the positions that you take, Australian voters want people who are going to stand on principle and who are not going to bend in the wind. And to see the Labor Party throw out so many of its pre-election policies, to see it um, bending in the political winds, is something that will appeal to no voters. It won't win them any votes at all. They completely misunderstand the desire of Australian voters to see politicians have a bit of backbone. Absolutely. It's like they're spooked and they've wedged themselves. It's kind of like a self-defeating prophecy almost, isn't it? Um, yes, uh, and it, it is so it is so electorally foolish that it's hard to believe that it's purely based on electoral ca- calculation. That's what leads me back to the conclusion that, in fact, the problem we're facing here are divisions within the Labor Party caucus. It's not about hard-headed strategists saying, oh, we need to head to the centre of the road or we need to bring back blue column. It's not anything like that. It's actually just about the Catholic right flexing its muscle and saying, uh, we need to support this and uh, kind of like political tail wagging the Labor Party dog. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, Anthony Albanese's job is to sort those divisions out and to uh, put people in their place if necessary and show some leadership and some unity. Uh, and in fact, demand that of his party. Uh, he's an experienced politician. I would have thought he was better at doing that. Yes, well, even though Bill Shorten is seen as the man who lost the election for Labor, he was exceptionally good, exceptionally good at uh, maintaining unity within the Labor caucus, particularly amongst those Catholic right members who were unhappy with marriage equality. In the end, they voted for marriage equality. He was good at negotiating their support for reforms that they found difficult to accept. I urge Anthony Albanese to get on the phone to Bill Shorten and ask him how he did that, because we really need that again, uh, if we're to avoid the blight of this uh, religious discrimination bill. Rodney Croom, always great to chat. Thanks for talking to us today on 3CR. Thanks, James.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their financial support of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.